The 2019 fantasy season is winding down. You're leading your league, but how do you stay on top? Todd Zola is leading a huge league, and I'll ask him how he's protecting that lead and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 6th. It's show number 38 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have a Friday special edition for you. It's our last podcast of the 2019 regular season. And we'll have a feature interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire discussing how he's front-running in the overall race in the 315-team Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational Experts League. We'll talk about some facts and flukes for hitters, starters, and relievers, and about using bullpens and base paths to glean points down the stretch. And we'll even touch on a brief preview of Todd's role at First Pitch Arizona in a couple of weeks. With the news pretty much done for the year, we've said so long and thank you to Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Greg Fishwick is still on the lam. I'm sorry, that should be still on an extended holiday, so the weekend pitcher matchups are done for the year as well, and Master Notes has wrapped up for the season too. But we will sneak in one last frequent flyer commentary with Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looking at Cubs catcher Miguel Amaya. It's a ninth inning Friday special edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It is our last podcast of the season. You best believe we're going down swinging and we will be talking some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday special edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and a regular guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. Todd, welcome back to the show. I guess we'll be we'll be talking at first pitch, but this is the last last podcast for uh, for the regular HQ Radio. It's uh, bittersweet, I would say. I don't know. Actually, it's bitter. It's, it's nothing sweet about it. Yeah, no, that's right. I really <laughs> I really miss it when I'm not doing it. You know, it's it's an opportunity to talk with. Uh, guys like you and uh, all the other great experts that we have on and our HQ staff that uh, contribute every week. It's a real pleasure, if you like fantasy baseball, to talk about it with people who know what they're talking about. Yeah, and with all the, you know, Sirius XM and the, on a, not so much unable, but it's just not worth their while to talk baseball. It's nice to have the podcast, and I'm actually lucky that I get to do this serious show on Saturday on the MLB Network, not the fantasy show, so that's kind of nice. It is kind of nice to know that they're still talking about baseball, and we'll be, uh, you know, we'll be talking about it at least through through first pitch, and we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, that's right. We will be having a, uh, a podcast at First Pitch Arizona. We'll be recording it on either the Friday evening or the Saturday. We'll get it out as soon as it's done, pretty much, and that'll be exciting. Uh, I think the plan is uh, for you and for me and for Ray Murphy to do our annual end-of-season roundtable. Might get Jock Thompson in there. He comes to First Pitch Arizona every year, and it's good to put a face to a name, you know, and, and talk to people directly. It's a awful lot of fun. We'll talk more yeah. about First Pitch maybe a little later. Uh in the meantime, uh, let's talk about your teams. I, I, I like to talk to most of my experts, but we usually don't talk about yours because you're a regular uh, guy on the show. So how are your teams doing? Well, all right. It's been such a mixed bag. I, uh, Yeah, I'm embarrassed. I'm in, I'm in last place in labor and tout, and I'm not happy about it. And it's, I think, the third year in a row of subpar results. And 
it's time to do some thinking and uh you know what 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 am I doing wrong? These are auction leagues, deep auction leagues, AL and NL only, so it's time to do some introspection and, and figure out, you know, so um if, if if people think that I have a pattern or I'm gonna draft in a certain way, don't be surprised if I change it up next year. It's uh I can't say but it's working anymore. Well, what is it that you kind of have been doing in these uh, only format leagues, and they're really different. People have to understand, uh, I know a lot of listeners just play mixed mm-hmm. only, and uh, the AL and NL only formats are really quite a bit different from mixed. The, the approach has got to be different. But what have you been doing in those uh, single format leagues that uh, at first reflection, I know you haven't thought about it deeply, but at first reflection, what do you think you've been doing uh, that you're sort of looking at as the obvious choices to make for I love the middle game. I love waiting. I don't. I don't jump in for the high-priced players. I love picking the middle. I love, uh, you know, what I consider beginning return on investment for players when, when the deflation part of the, the dra- you know, when inflation's over and the players are being deflated. So that I, I need. I, I think I need to change that up a bit. I don't think I can totally get away with it because I have a skill there. I have a, a patient skill and a skill to be able to manage my money. But I think I. I think I need to. Also, be more aggressive with some of the top players because there's nothing to say you can't spend $100 on three players and still play the middle game with the rest of your budget and a little bit of little bit of the end game. You don't need to go total stars and scrubs. I think you can get some stars on your roster and also, you know, then take it then take it easy and then jump back in in the middle. I think I ha- I'm going to do some studies and, you know, what are the return on investments on certain tiers? I know a guest of yours, Ariel Cohen, has done a lot of work on this. It's kind of up his alley with what to sort of cross over what he does for a living. So I, I think there's something to be said for that. And I think that's what I need to do is be a bit, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be the one that gets, you know, I don't know, Mike Trout and Justin Verlander, but I wouldn't be surprised if I am more aggressive early than I've been. And willing to spend, and I think that's turning into the model in a lot of ways. Uh, even guys in the American League Tout Wars that I'm in this year, I mean, Mike Podhorser went to, I think, well over 50 for Mike Trout and uh, and was happy to do it because he considered that was his true value, and then he had to sit out for quite a while, and then he started mm-hmm. grabbing those medium-priced guys. Of course, Mike Trout has not stolen bases this year, and that $51, and I don't know how Mike's uh, projection and valuation system works. I suspect it's somewhat different from baseball HQs because our value for Mike Trout going in, which was based on 25 or so stolen bases, was still only in the 40s. And Mike had him up at 51 or 52 because he, well, after he drafted him, he said, I well, still got OBP. him as a bargain. Trout's OBP. Trout's a monster in OBP. Yeah, and I I did the uh, the baseball yeah. HQ one using the custom draft guide with OBP, and it still wasn't a fifty dollar outcome. I mean, you can you can tweak the levers to make him come out as fifty two, but everything being neutral, he just wasn't that. And and uh, I'm not saying that I'm right or that HQ is right and that Mike's wrong, but the problem is if anything goes wrong with your fifty two dollar player, like he steals eight bases instead of twenty five, you're in trouble. Well, yeah, perhaps I don't know I don't know if trouble's the word. I'm learning, and we there's there's still one team we haven't talked about of mine. I'm learning that you can make that, that you can make some mistakes and still have a pretty decent year. So I don't know if in trouble is the word. I think you just you need to either get lucky elsewhere or just understand that I need to make up ground elsewhere. And if there's one category that you're going to be light on this, you know, and and I think it'll be next year too. This year, next year, it's stolen bases. I wouldn't be all that concerned about it. You don't need as many, and 
you you can do some damage in stolen bases with with uh without getting the top guy. Of course, it hurts that you, that he didn't get them, and you know that'll be a question. What is he going to get? And but um, I can see that. I think I had in OBP leagues. I act. I think I had Trout in the fifties. To be honest, I don't know for sure. But um, what I it's 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 uh what I didn't know. I mean, it's off topic a bit. What I didn't realize, and I do now. I didn't realize how much a monster Alex Bregman is in OBP leagues. That was a little a uh, little bummed out that I'm doing tout NL and don't get to bid on Alex Bregman because labor wears AL. It's he's not. I I just I was unaware or or just maybe. Um, a little naive to how much of a monster Alex Bregman is in OBP leagues. Yeah, and you mentioned that there's an element of luck in all of this, and that's especially true in a single-year redraft league where you know an injury or two or a crucial underperformance can really sink your team, uh, despite mm-hmm. having had an outstanding draft. And on the converse side, uh, if you draft a guy, as I did with Hunter Dozier at the end, as a basically a desperation ploy I needed somebody to fill that corner spot and he yep. was literally the only guy on there I thought might get some at-bats and of course Hunter Dozier turns out to be a borderline 20 $22 player he's doing yeah. well and those kind of things can really overcome the bad luck you have at the top but you got to have some luck somewhere yeah I mean I don't know I don't know if this is your exact scenario but I promise it was a scenario in some leagues some people were debating do they want to put their buck on Ryan O'Hearn or Hunter Dozier yep. a couple of Royals teammates and if you chose O'Hearn, you're in trouble. If you chose Dozier, you probably, in, in, you know, that had a, had a better season. So, but absolutely, uh, there was there was a ton of luck involved. You you know, you put yourself in a situation to take advantage of the luck. You, you know, I don't know that luck evens out or everybody has the same luck, but I think that that's part of it. And you, you mentioned you know, a, a player not performing can torpedo your season. Well, you know, everybody's going to have a player that's disappointing. So at that point, you're almost you're still even. So I I'm not I'm not yeah a, a player you know Giancarlo Stanton, you know Aaron Judge these players hurt their teams a bit, but it wasn't the only reason they lost. And and the if you win with Hunter Dozier, it's not the only reason you win either. No, that's for sure. And, uh, of course, uh, you're too modest to, to say, but I'll uh, step right in here and say in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, this is a League of Leagues and NFB styles, NFBC-style thing uh, where we have, I think, 30 leagues or something like that, or 20 leagues, anyhow, 300 and some guys, and they're broken up into leagues, and then there's a so each league has a champion, but there's an overall champion, and right now it's you. Yeah, I think there's 315 teams. I am um, leading my league by about 25 and I'm leading the overall by about 200. And to kind of, you know, kind of put that in perspective, the difference between me and the second place team is the same, I think, between the second place and 34th place team. At least when I, I you know, in a, in a board moment last night or a couple nights ago, I checked it, and that it might not be exactly right, but that's what it is. I happen to, I happen to be uh, having a good season there with a, you know, the same brain. That's in last place in tout and labor is having a good TGFBI season. So it's a go figure. Well, I calculated it as uh, your next place competitor needs about 8% of her total currently just to catch you. That is, she needs to boost her production across the board by eight percentage points assuming you don't make any gains at all just to catch you and and uh, you know all of the other people between her and you in the categories themselves it seems like a pretty uh, pretty tall order for her do you feel safe in this lead at 200 points with a month to go you know what i'm supposed to say no i'm supposed to say you know anything can happen and it can but 
yeah, I actually do feel kind of safe. I'm not, who knows, weird things can happen. I, I don't think it was less than a month, and it certainly wasn't September where players are losing at bats, but I gained 200, 250 points in hitting in a short order. And it's it's probably been six weeks, six and a half weeks or so, but you can make pretty meteoric rises fairly quickly. You just, I don't know that you can do it September. I mean, we'd say September. The season ends on the 28th. I mean, it doesn't seem like much, but that's three fewer days. I mean, it's 10% of the month, you know, if you look at it that way, you know, 30, 31-day month. And even, even the stars just aren't going to play as much. You know, maybe the... Maybe the, the the Cardinals and some of the teams that are chasing stuff will will play the regular amount, but you know, towards the end of the month, you're going to see a lot of these play. You know, say the Red Sox fall out of it, you're not going to see Mookie Betts and 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 Bogarts and Devers every day. Uh, you just you're just not going to. So it's harder to make up ground in that manner. So. Yeah, I think it's going to take, a, you know, nothing I can do. I mean, I'm going to make my moves, uh, but it's going to take a catastrophic, you know, failing by all my players to to lose this lead. And, I, you know, I, to be honest, I do feel pretty comfortable about it. And I think you should. I, I think that whenever you look at where you stand in a league, there are a couple of factors that you need to look at. And the first one is how big is the gap, of course. And if you're not in first place, you need to be looking at how many teams you have to jump over to get to wherever it is you want to go. And the more of them there are, the harder it's going to be because uh, uh, there's a compounding fa- uh, effect that goes, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I need four points to get past Larry, but I need four more to get past Jim. And that means I need, you know, I've got an 80% chance of doing one or the other. I got a 60% chance of doing both. And so yeah. it goes. And then in, inside the categories, the same thing is true. But I know when you said you moved a lot, uh, not only in points, but in standing places in that big spurt that you had, I was 40th or 41st or something, and I'm now in 11th. I just checked uh, this morning, and it's just uh, one of those situations where because I'm relatively far down in some of the categories, they're very tight. And Mm -hmm. uh, I I looked at it, and uh, for instance, in, uh, in wins, if I could somehow net four wins more than everybody else, you know, the next 40 guys in front of me, I could probably pick up 25 or 30 points. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I'm learning, one thing I am learning more about, you know, I, I you know, I, we talk, I think we even mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, someone like Ray Murphy has been in the top 10, has had a fight points, Rob Silver has won it overall, you've had him on the, on the show a few times sure, yeah. as a guest, I'm learning more and more about what happens in an overall competition. Now, I don't, I, just in a, just a position I don't have to, you know. I need steals. I need saves. I'm just, I just need players to play. So I'm not micromanaging on that level, but I do have a better feel for how much ground can be made up and lost. So if I ever, you know, knock on wood, am in this position again, either in the TGFBI or or in the NFPC, if I jump back in it, then I'll have a better idea how to how to manage. You know, if I'm in the if, if I blessed enough to be in the position that I'm in now. So I'm, I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to pay attention to these sorts of things. I'm not, you know, we hear all the time. I, you know, I talk to Rob. I talk to Dave Potts, who's in on the show. You know, sometimes they're in the first place. You know, they have to decide, do I want to win my league or do I want to advance further in the overall? I don't have to make that decision. I, again, I just need players that are playing. This guy's got four games. This guy's got three games. I don't care if he steals or hits homers. He's in my lineup. Uh, the, you know, the one that's got four games. Just I need stats, stats, and stats. 
in general at this point, what do you think the proportion of the outcome in this massive 315-player league is going to be due to luck rather than to sound management? You know, I don't know. And people the luck steal, and they like to put 70-30. I don't know what it is. I got, I got, you know, I got lucky with some of my pickups. Again, the same brain that put in pickups for other leagues and had them, you know, sent back to the minors got got Christian Walker and got and got John Birdie and got players like that. So it's I don't know the percentage. I just know that it's involved and I also don't know. I mean, I it's it's not like you can it's not like you can have no knowledge and get lucky and win. You, the luck has to supplement knowledge. What the actual split comes out to be, I don't know. And when you have 315 teams like we do, there's going to be some teams that just hit on more of their picks than than the misses and it's just it, it, it's 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 a, I don't know if it's a bad analogy but you get 32 people flipping a coin one of them is going to flip head six times yeah it was lucky but it was within the realm of probability so it's within the realm of probability that the the guys I picked up in, in Fab, I'm sorry, Fab, yeah, in Fab, in the league, it's within the probability that I had four or five of them hit because based on 315 teams, someone's gonna, and you know it was just fortunate enough to be me. That's all. So uh, you know I think there's some grinding involved. I, I took a little flack this week. Um, well now I have a mental block over the 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 Colorado outfielder that was just called up. Sam uh yeah Sam Hilliard. So I picked him up and I and I you know I posted on the Twitter, you know, 7 bucks for Hilliard uncontested. I'll take that. I didn't judge. I didn't say they should have bid. I didn't you know, I whatever. I just said I'll take that. And one response was, well, he's got seven away games this week. I'm like, well, yeah, but I don't need him this week. I'm looking at him when he has three straight home series. Uh, the following week, and NFBC and TGFBI, you, 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 you literally have people active for series. It was a, mid, was a midweek transaction period for hitters. So that's what I'm looking at. And then someone wrote back and said, well, if you didn't expect to use them this week, it's a waste of money because it's only 75% of your of your budget that or, or the time you can use them. Well, yeah, I, I suppose. But, I, again, I don't need them this week. It wasn't as if I was going to pick somebody up. So I think... Is it, you know, I think part of the, the point I'm getting is that this sort of thinking goes into picking up the free agents. I mean, who knows what Hilliard would do if he has a great homestand, then I look lucky. If he has a, you know, if he, but was it luck or was it, I looked ahead a week and saw that he's got 10 straight games at home. So, um, yeah, it, there's going to be some luck. And we talk about, you know, players um, not performing and it wasn't, I didn't have a perfect draft. And that's the other thing I've learned is, and I, I, we knew this anyway, but sometimes it's nice to see it. You know, the the, the it's not going to be the perfect draft that wins. It's going to take some moves in season. Not that I or anybody else listening, you know, just gives up in the middle of April when they have a poor team. But it, it's, again, it's when you see it happening, it's nice to, to validate uh, knowing, just keep grinding, this sort of thing. And the other thing is that uh, you mentioned the variability of tossing the coin. There's also variability in the players that are on your roster, whether you grabbed them through Fab or whether you had them on your roster and they were really killing it for you. I mean, all of us have those stretches of, you know, 10 yep. or 15 games where a player just plays really, really well or really, really poorly, and you've just got to build that into your expectations and, and stick with them. I, I, I that 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 comes back to luck in the to the extent that. 
uh, when the variation happens can really be critical to how you do. But if you keep the guy on your roster for the whole year, then his variations are just part of his record, and you have to live with sometimes he's batting 600, and sometimes he's batting 200, and most of the time he's batting whatever his average should be. Yeah, and then the, the luck has to do with injuries as well. I uh, I lost I lost Trey Turner early in the season. I lost Mike Clevenger early in the season, and I lost several players further on into the season. But it just it worked out that I had some players that backfield that picked up that sort of thing. But um, it's it's again it, it you know wasn't wasn't perfect isn't perfect. I mean I picked up Anthony Sant- Sant- Santander or Santander. Um, no idea that he was going to turn into a a very viable fourth fifth mixed league outfielder. I just needed a spot that week, and whether whether or not I liked his playing. Usually with me, it's usually playing time. I, I tend to focus on playing time as I as opposed to uh, what they did the previous. Oh, he had three homers. I'm going to pick him up. It's I look. Oh, he had 24 at bats. I'm going to pick him up. So maybe you know that's probably why I end up getting Santander. But a couple players, uh, Kyle Seager and Jackie Bradley who I've had on the team, others may have dropped him, dropped them. Maybe I was lucky that I had the, the ability to stash them on reserve without injuries. You know, you can call that luck. But looking at their underlying metrics, both of them, StatCast said for both of them that they were going to have better days ahead. So just picking when you, picking the right time to put them back in. And they were both part of my, you know, the, the six-week surge that I mentioned where I gained 200 points. So it, it was lucky that I could stash them on reserve, but the skill aspect is looking at the stat cast numbers and saying their expectations, their outcomes are, are, are below their expectations. Be patient. Days will get the things, you know, the, the day better days will come. Well, best of luck the rest of the way. That's going to be uh, fantastic f- uh, to watch. And I, I really like your chances of winning. If, uh, if Vegas was putting down a line, I'd, uh, I'd take you in the over for sure. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Rotowire ESPN and Masters Ball. Uh, at Rotowire, Todd, you had a column recently, uh, just last Friday, I think, about bullpens and base paths. You, uh, you talked about those two categories in particular as places that guys need to be looking if you do need to make moves. Uh, I'm going to ask you why the focus on these two categories, but of course I think I know. Well, it's alliteration. I like alliteration. <laughs> right, yeah. No, it's <laughs> just uh, basically um, they're both important, and when you look at season-long numbers, season-long stats, while this is true with anything, I think specifically with these categories, it's uh, you, you want to kind of know what's happening lately, especially, you know, bullpens. I don't care what happened before the All-Star break or whatever. I want to know what the bullpen's doing now with all the trades, with all the changes. I want to know what the bullpen's doing now. And I've done a study on steals that show that uh, first and second half tendencies with the you know, just just the, the number of times teams steal, teams run, changes based upon what happened in the first half. So I think these these are two numbers. So obviously both important in team management, but I also think you you need to focus more, or you know, you don't learn as much looking from season long numbers as you might for some other metric, some other category. So you talked about the Red Sox. Uh, this was a week or so ago. So at the time, they hadn't really done much to change things, except they finally settled on Brandon Workman as their closer. Uh, what point were you making about the Red Sox bullpen as having improved? Yeah, it was. It was more. They didn't do anything. 
in, in the, in the, I get you know the reason just to explain a little bit is when you're trying to stream header trying to stream hitters either on a daily basis or even for a weekly basis at this point because bullpens are so prevalent they're not they're not quite pitching four nights of the game it's the, a starter still goes a little over five innings but they're pitching you know 40 41 42 percent of the game and I think you, you can't just look at a starting pitcher and and judge if you want to use a hitter or not. You have to consider the bullpen as well, and that goes for on a weekly basis. So I think we've got some preconceived notions about certain bullpens, who's good, who's bad, and I just wanted to sort of verify. Unfortunately, in the end, there was nothing huge. There was just nothing, no huge takeaway, but you don't know that until you do the study. But the Red Sox just organically got better. They, As a bullpen, they pitched better. There was some luck involved, for sure. Some of the, the top pitchers, Got a little bit more lucky, but I think in general, the the bullpen was better. And if you if you if you're looking at the Red Sox, and it's so hard because your starters are so variable. But just looking at the bullpen, I think you need to at least be a little more uh, timid about streaming against the the pitchers because the bullpen was pitching better. And maybe it was because it's all you know in the head. Maybe it was because they finally decided on Brandon Workman. You're the guy, and you know. This, you know, Barnes is in the eighth, and whatever we're going to do in the seventh. And even though we think it's stratomatic or whatever sim game that you can just put the card in and they should do well, I think there is something to be said for pitchers being comfortable. So maybe there was a comfort level that roles were finally maybe determined. Another team you warned against uh, streaming your hitters in against was the Mets, who for a long time were in complete disarray in the bullpen, but uh, and there was nowhere to go but up. But they seem to have righted the ship a little bit. Little bit, and I, I probably since then they probably unrighted it. Uh, Diaz had another famous blow up recently, and uh, it's 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 the Mets have been sort of a talk about a roller coaster, and and, and I and I think we talked about this too that I you know I'm I'm a I like passionate fans. I don't care if they're on the Mets or Yankees. I'm a Red Sox fan. I like passionate fans, and I like seeing the. The, the, the Twitter passion, uh, good or bad for these teams. I'm not one that, you know, this is, ah, Mets fans are obnoxious. I think it's great. I think that I, I love when, it, when a fan base gets excited and then gets angry. As long as they're, you know, reasonable and don't use, you know, straw man arguments and, and keep things within reason. But, yeah, and, and even when they got better, it wasn't as if you were still scared about streaming against the, uh, the Mets. But, you know, they, the numbers did get better. A lot of teams got worse as well, and that starts in Miami, as usual, where they continued their master strategy of gutting the team every year by <laughs> trading Nick Anderson to Tampa, where he looks really good, actually, and Sergio yeah, yeah. Romo's in Minnesota, where he's uh, sort of settled in as the setup guy. But they did retain one bright light in Miami, and that's the guy they got from Tampa, Ryan Stanek. But overall, Miami's bullpen, uh, not good. Yeah, and Stanek needs to be an asterisk. He's, just, he's got a live arm. He just has to stop walking the ballpark. Um, reports are that Jose Urena is going to see some look a look at, at closer down the stretch. How many opportunities the Marlins give him, will, you know, obviously remains to be seen. It's an interesting Urena is interesting because you know the old uh, 95, 90, you know, fastball that's up there, but it's straight and and doesn't have the secondaries. Maybe maybe he'll work out. Maybe it'll work out for him in a in a closer role. It'd be interesting to see, but. You know, I think I think even since I wrote this, Stanek had another blow up, but it's uh, another live arm, and we'll hopefully, you know, we'll see if the if the Marlins can figure out what to do with these sort of guys. They're going to have to for the next time they compete. But yeah, it's uh, and Miami is sort of important just because 
I know their starters are pretty good, but there's still a place that you you might want to look at for for streaming hitters against a couple of their starters. Uh, Irina got a save, I think, his first uh, just the other yeah. night, Wednesday or Thursday or something. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, worst pens also include the Giants because they traded away the core of their bullpen behind Will Smith they kept, but Sam Dyson went to Minnesota, Mark Melanson went to Atlanta, and that has shown up in their results. Yeah, and this is a team where, you know, you know, borderline, do I use my hitters against Samarja? Do I use them against Bumgarner? They're, these are good starters, but they're not started enough to be scared about and then you say ah you know what the bullpen's pretty good though so i backing away now you can't say that anymore so now you know the tie goes to starting against a uh against the giants pitcher at this point and the angels have had some bad recent relief results or had at the time that your story came out but you made a point of of telling your readers it might be a usage anomaly because the the angels are leaning towards openers whose stats get bundled in with the relievers because they don't start games as as starting pitchers not just well actually it's, it's it's the it's the primary pitcher who gets bundled in with, as the reliever right and though and those they, they were having their, their primary pitchers were not or bulk pitchers whatever it might be they're the guys that weren't pitching particularly well so that's something we're gonna have to as we continue to go on whether you play dfs or whatever it might be you're gonna have to do some more filtering when you look at bullpens and whether it be from the seventh inning on or with a certain lead or however you want to do it there it's it's becoming so specialized even in this area that you can't just sort on fan graphs and hit relievers because it could be misleading over to the stolen base side, uh, the point you were making in the article was it's so team-dependent. A manager decides nobody's running, then nobody's running. But you pointed out, for instance, the Nationals have turned on the green light a little bit. Yeah, and sometimes it's if it's monkey see, monkey do. Or I've always felt that steals were, they're, they're kind of a want to. They're, they're, they're opportunity, they're skill for sure. But it's, it's, it's weird how many players that are having particularly good seasons that can run a little bit, just also have steals. And there's a confidence level, I think, in, in there. And it, it goes with the team as well. And the Nationals went on their bit of a run. Of course, they've got Trey Turner, who's in the in the low 30s, I believe, with steals. Victor Robles, who can run. So they do have a couple people. But, I mean, Juan Soto, not that he can't run, but, you know, eight or nine, wherever it might be. So they're just, they're getting, they're running some of their, their players that you don't think about run are running. And it's just, it's a good place to, uh, you can't go out and pick up Trey Turner, obviously, but if you're trying to figure out where you are, well, he's going to keep running. Soto's going to get me a couple more. Rendon might get me one or two more, things like that. So, uh, and, and I don't know if it caught me by surprise, but if someone had said, you know, who's leading the league in steals or whatever it might be, I don't know that I would have said the Nationals. Maybe I should have, but I didn't know that I would have. You said that the Marlins aren't running and they should be. Yeah, who, who you know? Who, who am I to say? But you play in a park that's huge. You don't have any real power. Well, you get a couple of power hitters. Why not? Why not run? And and I know the the game is not to run now. I mean, you're not gonna you're not waiting around waiting for Starlin Castro to hit a three run homer. Uh, you know, saying somewhat tongue in cheek. So I and they've got some guys that, that with some wheels. Either that or why aren't they bringing up some of the players with wheels? So it's it's sort of you know again I, I I my joke is I like to leave this to our friend Joe Sheehan this kind of analysis and I'll take care of the fantasy, but it just whatever I, I just I felt that the little editorialism why why aren't the Marlins running? Well, the Red Sox were running uh, through the first part of the season and now they've seem to have pretty much stopped. 
yeah, and uh, the, the the team is still scoring runs. They're still hitting. Whether it's just a different distribution of of who's doing the hitting, I don't know. Whether it's you know last year, you know Alex Cora had the Midas touch. This year, not so much. It could be you know that whole attitude thing. They're just not as confident, or they're trying to catch up in in the wild card, and so maybe they're just afraid to make an out. Whereas last year. They had such a lead that they could freely, if they made an out, was so what sort of thing. So whether it's mental or not, I don't know. But, you know, they're, they're not any slower, I don't think, you know, some of these players. So it's just weird how they stop running. And I still think we said, well, I think someone, I think Bogarts can get us to the, if you had these guys in your roster and you expected some steals, I think you had a plan to get them elsewhere. That was that was part of the uh, the reason for the Red Sox, so. Andrew Benintendi might help me if he started running a little bit uh, as he did in past years. Uh, the Blue Jays might be running, but they have to stop getting caught. You know, interesting, the whole anti-saber thing that we talked about as far as team tendencies go. Uh, I don't think that they, I think that they will let him run. I think that they want the uh, Kevin Biggio and they want Bob Bichette and they want some of these kids to run. I don't think they're going to stop them. I think just they need them to learn learn how to increase their efficiency, get better reads. And I don't think you can do that by putting the brakes. I think you, almost, you have to learn on the fly. And you let batters learn on the fly, and they strike out, and no one says anything. So I think it's just letting these base runners learn on the fly and getting sto- getting caught. And it's it's an outs and out. You know, it doesn't look good. But um, I think it's just the, the what they have to do is let these guys learn on the fly. And if they want it to be part of their game, and I, do, I think they, they do. So not happy about the nine for 17 or whatever it might be for for biggio but i think it's just part of the learning process of uh, of, of learning the skill and wouldn't shock me i'm trying to think back in the in the in the blue jays organization so who, who could who could they bring in for a while it was always davy lopes right teams brought in davy lopes and their stolen base percentage went through the roof the next year always got better so I wonder if there's just someone they could bring in and in spring training and, and work with the runners to uh, better jumps, better reads, et cetera. Yeah, Ricky Henderson made kind of a name for himself over the last few years as a kind of a coach for hire to improve that angle on things. Uh, Todd, interesting, as I expected. Uh, uh, take a quick break here, and we'll come back in a couple of minutes. We'll talk about some players. Facts and flu. Good plan. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and he'll be back a little later on in the show. But coming up, it's going to be our final frequent flyer comment of the season. But first, I want to take a second to say thank you to some people who really made the Baseball HQ Radio podcast this season. I'll start with our Baseball HQ commentators. Our Market Watch commentators, of course, Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. They both did an excellent job, and believe me, behind the scenes, it's not as easy and fun as it sounds. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky doing a killer job, and our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. And of course, it wouldn't have been the show it was without our regular weekly talk with Todd. I just can't say enough about Todd Zola. He's one of the best analysts in the business, always ready to talk baseball here on Baseball HQ Radio, and a good friend. We also had a who's who of the fantasy baseball industry as our special guest experts, and I'd like to give them my thanks right now in reverse alphabetical order. The Z guys shouldn't always have to go last. 
So let's start with thank you to Jeff Zimmerman and Paul Sporer and Rob Silver. Ron Chandler made an appearance early in the season. We had an interview with Larry Schechter and Michael Salfino, Mike Podhorzer, Scott Pianowski, always a favorite guest, Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, another guy who does a lot of work behind the scenes to make this podcast possible, the wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, was on a couple of times. We had Justin Mason, Chris Liss, our first interview from Europe. He and his family live in Portugal, and we managed to get that connection going. We had Rob Liebowitz, Mike Gianella, Nando DeFino, Doug Dennis from Baseball HQ, of course, our bullpens columnist, Jason Collette, Glenn Colton, Ariel Cohen was on a couple of times, and Howard Bender from SiriusXM. And of course, thanks to you as well. If you weren't downloading these shows and listening to them, we wouldn't be doing them. So thanks for that and for all the kind words and suggestions you've sent in via email and Twitter and the occasional brick thrown through my kitchen window. And I do appreciate you not using the sliding glass patio doors. Those things are really expensive. Thanks again to everybody, and let's get back to the show. Baseball HQ Radio. So welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our final HQ Radio commentary, The Frequent Flyer where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This year, by the way, our frequent flyer commentary has tipped Baseball HQ Radio listeners to all kinds of players who made an impact this year, like Nate Lowe, Caleb Smith, Harold Ramirez, Zach Gallen, Ian Miller, Nate Pearson and Emmanuel Close, who could be great keeper league gets, uh, Brock Burke, and of course, in late April and early May, we had two genuine studs, Oscar Mercado of Cleveland, who has 10 homers and 13 steals in this season with a two seventy one average. And Jordan Alvarez was a frequent flyer. All he's done is hit 22 home runs, drive in 63, and amass a three seventeen average in just 240 at-bats. I've heard talk he could be a first-round pick next year, and the frequent flyer had him first. We had a lot of flyers, and they were pretty darn frequent. This week's frequent flyer, Cubs catcher Miguel Amaya. And here to tell you more, one last shot from Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. There's a frequent flyer going back, way back. It could be, it might be, it is a home run. Holy cow. Of course, longtime Chicago Cubs fans will recognize that no one, simply no one, is better at that signature call than the legendary Harry Carey. And yes, we did substitute frequent flyer for there's a drive going back, way back. But in honor of Harry Carey's memory, and in joyous anticipation of Baseball HQ's annual expedition to Arizona, this time to Mesa, next to the spring training home of the Chicago Cubs, let's whet your appetite for the Arizona Fall League by introducing a 20-year-old Chicago Cubs catcher that appears to be rising quickly through the rookie rankings. Twice named as a Futures game selection by the age of 20, being first selected at 19, his first full season of professional baseball. Wow. Chicago Cubs catching prospect Miguel Amaya appears to possess developing power, something very, very valuable at the catching position. Through 99 games at Class A Advanced Myrtle Beach, Miguel Amaya belted 11 home runs in only 341 at-bats, ranking him in the Carolina League's top 20 for home runs in 2019. Not bad for a catcher. Are you listening, Dynasty owners? On the other hand, Miguel Amaya seems like he has some room to grow before reaching Wrigley. In fact, we're not projecting him to debut until 2021. That's why Miguel Amaya, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot. 
who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Yes, it's not unusual for catchers to take a longer development path than the minors, but Miguel Amaya's defensive productivity behind the plate and his prowess while batting could certainly accelerate that timetable, especially with a productive performance in the Arizona Fall League. Plus, keep in mind that there's hidden value here. Although Miguel Amaya's .235 batting average in 2019 doesn't necessarily jump off the page, his 80% contact rate, which measures the batter's ability to get wood on the ball and hit it into the field of play, should grab your attention. When using contact rate as a leading indicator, we regard hitters with contact skill levels above 80% to be among baseball's best hitters, according to our skill-based benchmarks for performance at BaseballHQ.com. In other words, Miguel Amaya's 80% contact rate not only ranks him among baseball's best hitters, according to our benchmarks, but it also indicates that Miguel Amaya does not strike out very often. And neither will you when you join us in Arizona in October, and when you consider adding Miguel Amaya as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Todd Zola, welcome back. Good to be back with you, Petey. Mix up for uh, mix up for last week when we uh, we weren't able to talk. That's right. It does, and it's always such a pleasure to have you on. Now, I know uh, we're both going out to First Pitch Arizona, and I'll talk about this a little later, but one of the most popular panels, actually three of the most popular panels now, is the Factor Fluke Sessions, where we look at hitters and pitchers, and uh, I think relief pitchers this year, I'm not sure, and uh, decide whether their performance this year was a factor or a fluke. And I thought, uh, you're not doing that panel this year. You have a different, uh, real interesting panel about the baseball with Ron Chandler and Jason Collette, and and uh, I'm going to be hosting a, hosting a panel not on one, and so I thought we could talk about some hitters and whether they're facts or flukes. It, it's that time of year when we're mm-hmm. looking ahead to 2020. I've seen quite a few mocks already. I've seen some for real draft and holds. Before we start talking facts and flukes, how valuable do you think these super early drafts are? Um, having having been in them and done them, they're I think they're more entertainment at this point than they are. Real, I think that you begin to set the market. So from a content provider, it gives me players to focus on. All right, even even if it's even if it's September, this guy's being drafted here. My rankings say, or my initial thought is here. So I do a deeper dive. It, it it's a, it, whether it helps you draft in in March or not. I'm I'm, un, I'm I remain unconvinced. I think it's I think it's fun from the pure. Just, just, just the, I don't know, aesthetic, but just you, you, it's clean. You know, you don't have any preconceived. No, there's not an ADP. There's not a ranking out there. You're drafting. It, 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 you know, it, it's pure. It's your own thoughts. I actually do a league, and one of the reasons I'm not doing any of the mocks yet or whatever, um, I do a league. It's an NFBC league that is going to start drafting on September 29th. It's a real league. We I've talked about. It. We call it the Premature Draftulation League, and it's uh, I actually share a team with Derek Van Riper, uh, the Athletic. And uh, it's a real league. It's an NFB satellite, and it, and it counts. My favorite part about it is we don't. People are just going with what if they, if 
they're drafting guys in the first round who are going to be drafted in the fifth round come March. But this is, you know, this is there's no ADP to compare it against. Even if you don't believe in ADP and that you don't use it to draft, you still use it to judge the market and to to time your own picks. It's not there. So I, I think it's great. Justin Mason, our friend Justin Mason, is putting these together, these early mocks, the same guy that does the TGFBI. I think it's a great thing. Uh, just it, it keeps the interest up. It keeps baseball in the, in the spotlight. I think that's a fantastic thing. Uh, you know, someone, because they're mocking in September or October, does that give them an advantage in March? I don't think so. The one thing about ADPs uh, that you mentioned, and I think this has the possibility of changing it is that the ADPs tend relatively quickly to become a self-reinforcing phenomenon. You know, those first, the early ones come out in usually in Jan- late January, early February, something like that. And uh, because of the auto-drafting systems and partially because people look at them and use them to, as you said, to calibrate when they want to take guys, those ADPs start getting pretty solidly self-reinforced pretty quickly. And I wonder if there's a chance this year that kind of like NCAA football rankings that Clemson comes out number one before anybody's even played a game. And now they are number one until somebody beats them, basically, or until something goes wrong. And, and they get to maintain their position without necessarily having done too much to have earned it in the first place, except winning in a previous year. So as questionable as the ADPs are, is there a chance that starting these mock drafts this early is going to make them even weirder? Yeah, they, they did them last year. So, I, I mean, we, this is now the second year of doing it. And the NFBC is going to start with some money leagues uh, come middle of November. So it, things are happening earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, I mean, you asked me before what some of the mistakes I made in the in the, in the the auctions and, and even when I do the drafts, or especially when I do the drafts. I've become, I think, you know, again, I, I don't follow ADP. I use my rankings. But I, I kind of go in and I say, all right, I know I'm going to get this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. I know I'm going to purchase this player, this player, this player, and this player. What do I need to do around it? And it may seem like the smart thing to do, but I think one of the, the other, another mistake I'm making is, all right, if I, it's okay if I, if I get these guys that that I have ahead of the market for whatever reason. That's not the problem. But I don't think I can plan my team around it. I think I just have to draft the best players or pay a good no, a good a good number for a player in auction and still get some of my other players later i don't think i can pencil these five guys in and then plan the draft around it i think i'm leaving too much on the table by doing that and if i think that, you know other other than the mistake i think i've been making as far as in auctions paying you know staying in the middle too much i think i'm too reliant on my players and this isn't to say that i haven't been right on my players it's that i don't think you can give stuff up early just to get them later. Um, I, mean, I think that's kind of a, a global mistake I made. I don't know how whether people use ADPs and if, if they're people that in a similar nature in that, you know, I, I whatever whose ADP are using, whoever's rankings you're using, I know I'm going to get these six players. I mean, I've written articles that this is how to do a draft. You're going to get these six guys. What do I need to do around it? I'm beginning to think that's not the best approach. Well, I think I'm not beginning. I'm convinced it's not the best approach. 
Well, as I said, we're talking facts and flukes, uh, big, big panels at the uh, First Pitch Arizona about that. And usually, uh, in fact, uh, almost entirely, they're going to be guys who performed in an unusual fashion or to an unusually high or low level. And then we try to decide whether it was accurate. And I'm curious about some players in that regard. And I'd like to start with a guy I had on two of my teams, uh, I bet, and one on Baltimore middle infielder Jonathan VR. He was a $40 player in 2016, had 19 homers, 63 homer, uh, 63 bags. Not quite there this year, but certainly around 30 bucks worth, 20 homers, 33 bags, batting 280. How willing should we be to accept that this year is the real VR, and how high would you slot him for 2020? Yeah, all right. So first, I, I think Baltimore has one more year of control, and whether they go to arbitration or send him a contractor, maybe they non-tender and he goes elsewhere. It's with it's with playing time. What we're seeing with VR, we're seeing a rate of production that he's done before. And it may be on the upper end of the of what you expect, but it's 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 what it, the rate of production isn't the fluke. It's uh, it's a fact. Now it so it comes down to playing time. And I I think we we talked about this because I, I I identified VR as someone that not only I but I think the 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 industry made a mistake on. We looked at his last three years worth of at bats and we tempered the number of bats we gave him this year. And at the time I concluded that was wrong. And uh, you know that that turned out to be right. He the, who else is Baltimore going to use? And they don't have anybody. And he's played basically the full season VR. So I I think that was the mistake that we all made was just not. Not giving him 150 games. He he lost some time with a thumb last year, and that could happen. I don't think you can downgrade him too much. That's why I said 150 and, and not 155 or 160. And the year before that, 2017, different organization with Milwaukee. And he did slump and went it fell into a platoon and was losing playing time before he got dealt. Uh, so um, there is that possibility. But if he's back in Baltimore... Yeah, he's. This is what we. This is what we said. Now the batting average. Eh, I mean, 280. He's hit 287, 286 before. I don't think it's a fluke, but you know, batting average can be hit 260 next year and be the same guy. He's going to run and he's going to hit. He's not. You're not sacrificing power from the middle infield. So, if he's back with Baltimore, he's the kind of guy you want. If you draft a Nolan Arenado or a uh, J.D. Martinez in the first, you're not going to get any steals. He's the kind of guy you have to look at if you want to start to balance out your team. For sure. Uh, I think he could easily finish up this year 25-40, and, and what team he ends up on is going to be critical. But don't you think at this point that no matter where he ends up, he's going to be a starter. He's going to have to play his way off the roster because I think most teams would be interested in acquiring him not to be a, a guy you play every like two out of three days. They're going to want a 150 uh, guy, 150 games played guy. I would think so with the small asterisk that he's not a good defender and he's not a smart player. He's not an instinctual player. He's not a fundamentally sound player. And I think that was part of the issue in Milwaukee. So if he's on it, you know, I, I want him to stay on Baltimore because yeah. they're not in a, they're not in a position yet to care. Um, and maybe this is a reason why one of the top, team, top teams will not sign him is because they know that. I mean, if I know it, they're going to know it. So I, you know, I want him. I want to I want to read that. He avoided arbitration as he's signing for X amount of million dollars and staying with Baltimore. Uh, I, I actually, you know, from fantasy point of view, I want to read that. 
How confident are you that uh, Raphael Devers has uh, been a revelation this season? 29 homers, 107 RBIs, 114 runs scored. I think a uh, few bags and a 320 batting average. He's easily the top third baseman in all of baseball for fantasy purposes. Uh, how confident are you that Raphael Devers is the real deal? This is a fact and not a fluke. The, it's a fact. However, as you know, there's skills come in ranges as well. I mean, he, he can be the same player, and he can hit 290 and 25 homers and, and, and et cetera next year. And it's just that he finished this year. He's the 95th percentile of his skill level. Next year, maybe it's the 55th or 45th percent. Who knows? So what we're seeing is the real deal. Uh, where, you know, that's where he falls, what the actual numbers are, I don't know. Um, the power, it's weird. And he, he, he took a long time before he got off the schneid with the power. And yet, he, you know, he's going he's gonna to have 30-something-plus homers. Um, I, according to some data, which I will probably refer to in a bit, he's a little bit lucky in that regard. And But I haven't adjusted the data for Park yet. So once I adjust it for Fenway Park, I'm not sure how lucky he'll be. But, um, yeah, what we're seeing is real. But that doesn't mean he's going to repeat these numbers. For me, what jumps out is the big improvement in strikeouts, uh, avoiding strikeouts, putting the ball yep. into play. Two years ago, I think he had a, a BABIP of around 360 or something like that. And that's pretty much the same as what he's doing this year. Actually, 350, probably closer. Yeah. Uh, but he's putting that many more balls into play, which means he's getting that many more hits at that BABIP. And that means his batting average goes up because he's just not striking out as much. Uh, you... Todd, I have to give you credit where it's due. For a long time, we're the biggest Kettle Marte fan <laughs> I knew. And sometimes it didn't go all that well for you. But this year, I hope you grabbed him again. He's a top 20 hitter, 30-ish dollar value like VR. Uh, only nine stolen bases, but almost 30 home runs. And a 324 batting average, elite contact. How enthusiastic will you be on Kettle Marte as a fact for next year? Or are you worried it's a fluke? Well, to be honest, or to be fair, uh, I liked him for the latent speed. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. You know, I appreciate the the note that I've been higher on him than a lot of other people, but is you know right for the wrong reasons, if you will. I did. You know, no one expected this power surge, but you know at this point we'll take whatever we can get. Unfortunately, though, I see. I just see a lot of luck in Marte's um, profile, especially power. And here's where I was gonna you know mention the data that I was referring to, and I'll you know credit Mike Podhorzer who. Has, you mentioned as far as AL Tout before, but he, he does some work on projections and he has an annual presentation at the spring first pitch forum where he looks at fly ball distance correlating to home run percent. And there's a this year, I don't I, this year is like an 80% correlation. So it's a, and this is again without adjusting the data for parks. And Marte just falls on the, the his fly ball distance does not correlate to the number of homers that he's hit. And and I need to do more work on this research, but he he's pulled 23 of his 28 homers, and I think the the preliminary research shows that uh, you're more able to sustain your home run production if you get more opposite field home runs than that. So uh, he he his his hard hit rate is fine, his speed is still off the charts, so there's still latent speed in there. Uh, but if the the power, and I'm not going to be the only one that's going to say the power is going to fall. Now, most people are going to say it just because it's the thing to say. I like to look at, you know, I like to look at the reasons, and I can support it using fly ball distance and pull data, and that that's why his home runs are going to fall. 
the couple of big things that I've noticed about Marte is a, a pretty significant five or six point gain in hard hit ball uh, yeah. contact, a, a commensurate decline in soft. He's stayed in the middle of, as far as medium, and that seems to have fueled along with possibly the ball we have to give credit his home run per fly ball rate is pretty much doubled from 10 to 20 percent and that worries yep. me quite a little bit uh trevor story todd is the top shortstop by baseball hq value he's got 30 home runs 19 stolen bases he'll probably finish something on the order 35 20 batting average hovering around 300 but francisco lindor is in the conversation he's at 27 home runs and 20 bags also right around 300 and he missed the first three weeks or so of the season uh, how will you be ranking story and lindor as facts or flukes for 2020 and in what order i think well i think they're both facts uh, at this point and um, it's, it's, it kind of, it's, it seems at the time, it, it, the, remember we were all concerned about Lindor running, you know, it seems though where our concerns were, were misplaced at this point. Ah, they're both, they're both first round picks where they, where in the first round exactly. I don't know, but in the goal, in, I don't know if it's the golden age of shortstops, but man, it, there's a lot, there's a lot of really good shortstops out there. They're the two best. So, um, I think, I think Lindor may end up ranked just a little bit higher just because again this is the principle you were talking about before the clemson principle where he was ranked higher and there's no reason not to continue to rank him higher uh i think you know if you're going to say i'm going to pass on lindor the fifth spot to take troy to take story to 10th you know maybe it comes a the proverbial value thing Well, let's stay on shortstop. Uh, Tim Anderson was among the value and batting average leaders through the first couple of months of the season. He then lost more than 100 at-bats to an injury, still batting 328 for the season, which is remarkable. If somebody had said before this season, Tim Anderson's going to hit 328, you would have laughed in his face. His lowest batting average month only down around 275, and we would have taken that for a full season. Uh, but what's your take on Tim Anderson for 2020? Fact or fluke? Uh, it's, there's some, there's some, you know, contradictory numbers, push me, pull me sort of things. Hard hit rate is up, strikeouts are down. That's good. Yet his still expected batting average is still a little bit low, but that might just be because it's, he's just profiles a different player. The the speed, et cetera, the, the exit velocity, even though it's up is still 88.8 miles an hour average exit velocity. So it's still below average and, uh, not many, many, very many, very many barrels. I think, I think, it, to me, he's sort of a 280, 290 hitter, and we talk about fluctuation around batting average. I think he has more, uh, more variance around his average. I think he's got more high variance than low. I think the floor is pretty safe, but you know, I think we're seeing the upper end. You know, everything that could go through is going through. Everything that. It, he's hitting, even an infield hit, he's hitting it just far enough away to the shortstop that he has to stretch a little further into the hole and make the throw, and that's just enough to get in the, uh, to, to, to be safe, etc. So I think it's, uh, he, he shall outperform his peripherals, but, um, you know, the 320 is, I don't know what, what, what HQ's expected batting average would be, I, uh, probably below 300. I think we're looking at a 280, 290 hitter, which is still good especially if he's going to run with the success that he usually runs with. The thing that jumped out at me when I was starting to look at Tim Anderson as a 2020 guy is he boosted his hard hit contact rate a little bit uh, to, from 30 to about 33, but his BABIP went up from 290 to 390. 
you know, and he was uh, he's striking out a little bit less, about five points less. So you got to give him some credit for that. Putting right. more balls into plays, as we talked about earlier, is going to help his average. But a hundred point increase in BABIP just looks to me like there's a lot of fluke in there. Yeah, and that's what I mean. To, you know, to, and I, yeah, I took I took forty, forty, thirty to forty points off his average. So as far as my baseline goes, so no, I I agree. I agree. Another shortstop, another shortstop having a terrific year is uh, Marcus Semyon of Oakland. There's been a lot of uh, news reports, media reports, about the work that he did to become a better defender, which allowed him to stay right. on the field. And it seems to have washed over into his offense. He's having a breakout year, around $21, 5-by-5 value at HQ. He's got 25 home runs. He's going to be way over 100 runs scored. He's got a shot at 30 homers, 8 bags. 7 caught stealings is a worry, but he's walking a lot more, striking out quite a bit less. Marcus Semyon, this seems like a fact to me. What do you think? I think it's a fact. I'm not even. I don't know that I would call it a breakout. He. I think what he's doing is uh, he's he's doing everything well in the same year. In 2016, he had 27 homers, and he's hit for higher average the following two years. I think this year just everything has come together, and he's playing at the top end of his skill of of, of his level. You mentioned the bag seven of fifteen. I don't like very much. You could always, you know, say always. You could count on him for you know low teens, if you will, and maybe he'll get there. You know, maybe he won't. I don't know. But um, I've always liked Semyon at the price. Now, if the question now is going to be because of this perceived breakout, if if with the average being up, what's the price going to be? So I'm curious. I mean, he talked about TGFBI before he's uh was it lucky that I've got Semyon in my 25 in his 25 homers on my team or was it you know realizing that he was undervalued at the draft and you know therefore taking advantage of it so I think it's a little bit of both you, you can you can you can be you know you can be good and lucky at the same time Josh Bell of Pittsburgh is a bit of a question mark for me. He started off really firing, but he fell off his torrid early pace, but still he's going to finish around 35 homers, 110 RBI, which is worth noting. How will you be thinking about Josh Bell when it comes time to start your 2020 planning? Yeah, you mentioned early, and this is just, to me, this is just a, uh, he had May. He had 12 homers in May. He had six in April, four in June, five in July, eight in August. September obviously still unwritten. So six, four, eight, five, that's probably an average around six. It's twenty four, sorry, twenty three and twenty three in those months. So if he averaging, you know, high fives low into six, that's a thirty five, thirty six home run season and he's gonna be closer to forty because he had twelve in May. So I think we can look at Bell at this point as a thirty to thirty five home run guy and he just had just had a fantastic May. Had that May occurred, had that twelve occurred in August, maybe the narrative would be he's going to hit more next year because he had a great second half. It's just funny how because the 12 had it happen in May, the narrative, he fell off the table. If the same thing, again, if it's 12 in August or September, the narrative is he's going to do better next year. So uh, there are certain circumstances where I do believe first and second half matter. Um, to me, it was just it happened to be May. Where do you foresee Jordan Alvarez going next year? This is a real interesting thing to me. How likely is he to meet the draft expectations he takes into next year? Uh, and where do you think those expectations will set him? Man, I've been thinking about him and Aquino from Cincinnati. I think you can sort of interchange. You know, one's on outfield, the other going to be DH, which matters. But, you know, the, the, way they just, the way that they've come on. And Alvarez had more of a 
Alvarez had more of a pedigree with Aquino. It's more of coming out of nowhere, so the analogy is not perfect, but still they're both just breaking projection systems, as it were. I don't know. Um, I think I've heard talk of second round. Some of these drafts are going on now. He may even be, may even come to the point where he's been drafted in the second round as a DH only. It just, it just seems too rich for my blood. This is uh, baseball's hard, and uh, he, yeah, he's good, but I don't. Is he a 45-50 home run guy? I, I just don't know. Now, part of the problem is he had such a great minor league season that you can't use the MLEs to calm it down. It may even he had such a great minor league season, it's actually going to embellish what he's done. So uh, I, I think that uh, you know I, I'm probably gonna have a talk with Ray Ray Murphy at the uh, at the at, what do you what are you guys doing with Alvarez? Um, you know, I'm, I'll actually by I'll, by that point I'll already have to have it done because I'm gonna need, you know need to launch uh, November 1st and you guys will be doing the forecaster so you may have some numbers preliminary numbers already too. So, but still, ah darn. To answer your question, I think he's gonna go too high, uh, especially because. I do like to get my DHs at a discount. I believe you you, you embellish the discount. Um, I got Nelson Cruz this year in TGFBI. I took the discount. Uh, there's enough multi-eligibility players out there that you can put a chain of eligibility and pretty much get your lineup as active as possible, even with a UT. But I'm, if I'm going to draft a UT DH, I want a bit of a discount just because it does handicap you. It does hamstring you at the, for flexibility. And in today's game, you need position flexibility to get to maximize your lineup efficiency. On the downside, we had some players who did not perform as well as we expected, but they that can be a factor of fluke. Uh, I want to start with Manny Machado. He's got 28 home runs, which is pretty much what we expected, but he's only hitting 264. Not tremendous numbers, not a tremendous team. He's got a $15 valuation right now at Baseball HQ. How likely is it, Todd, that we need to recalibrate our expectations of Manny Machado, or should we see him as a fluke and a potential real high-value profit maker in a lower round next season? I think he may be uh, he may be another uh, to a lesser level, but the whole the whole Clemson idea about we had a preconceived notion, and maybe we maybe we're too aggressive, and we now finally need to back down. I think some will argue that we were that way on Carlos Correa. Some will still still uh, you know take it to the grave that he is going to win the MVP one year. We shall see. It may just be that we're still banking on our initial expectations, because if you look at the numbers, yeah, they're down. Um, how much of it is Petco Park? It's weird. The the part of the numbers that surprised me the most are his doubles. And Petco Park is supposed to embellish doubles, and he's got 20 in you know 20 20 20 more than I hit, but he's hitting you know averaging 35 38 doubles with in Baltimore, where doubles are actually uh, because the park's so small, the number it hurts doubles. Uh, so if any place in that's that. That's where it's most surprising. Everything else is sort of team-based and park-based, and it's, it, it kind of it, it it goes in line with what I expected based upon the park. So, I think if you if you do if you do numbers sort of statistically, uh, uh, formulaically, it's going to take care of itself. I think those that still have him in their head as a first rounder, et cetera, or even second rounder at this point, I think you need to make your adjustment there. Now, having said that. 
our friends Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf, they have done work and they show that players the first year in a new team, they don't they like to avoid them because they usually don't have a, a good year that first year. Not that everybody doesn't, but uh, you know globally they're usually down. So perhaps next year, having seen the pitchers a little bit more, maybe Machado bounces back in that regard. So if if the, if the, if he falls too much, I can see there would there would be a little bit of a a value to be had. But I think part of it is uh, in general we have to get over the fact that he's a very and there's nothing wrong with being very good. He's a very good player. I don't know if he's great and you know he'd be paid he got paid all the money as if he was great. Maybe that has something to do with it. Um, looking at the games played, he's one of those accumulators and he averaged 158 games and he'll probably get close to that again this year. There's what 20 something games left and he's at 134 so it won't be too far below. He's still going to average 155 so part of it's accumulator and then he's in the lineup all the time and that's always a risk too because you have that one year where you don't play and your numbers drop. Uh, so um, I think we just have to re- recalibrate that you know, let the, believe the numbers. He's very, very good. He's just not, not elite. We talked about Andrew Benintendi a few minutes ago. His value has fallen from the low 30s in 2018 to half that this year, maybe even less. Uh, is the decline a real deal, or is there a bounce back coming? Because there's a lot of indications both ways. You know what? If you look at the numbers, if you look at the slash, if you look at the the rate stats. It's, you know, we can talk about inconsistency up and downs, but at the end of the day, he's going to have a very, Benintendi, his slash, you know, his skills are going to be very, very close to what they were last year. So I don't know, you know, I don't factor fluke. I don't know either. I think he is what he is. Now, this is the interesting part, and you you, you could dollar values, et cetera. All right, he's not running, which is is one thing, but he's going to fall well short of runs in RBI. And team-oriented stats can't predict. Well, I don't know if we can't predict. I think we, uh, I think there's, we need to look into a little bit. But he was hitting second a lot last year, high in the order last year, and that's when he scored a ton of runs and he was able to get a bunch of RBIs with the back of the order doing well. He has hit first, second, a little bit of fourth, but he's been hitting fifth and sixth a lot lately. He hasn't hit third, which is the number one RBI spot and the number one run spot. He hasn't hit there at all this year. But when you've got when you've got a guys in front of you with Devers and Bogarts and Martinez, Devers is knocked in 107, Bogarts 103, Martinez 93. When you've got these guys clearing the bases before you, you're not there's going to be there's no one left. So even with the same slash line, I don't not going to get into the clutch and all that stuff. There's just it doesn't have as many RBI opportunities. And when you're batting fifth and sixth which he's done a lot of this, or at least in the second half, you're not going to have as many run-scoring opportunities. So the same skill set, where you are in the order, situationally, is is affecting the runs and RBIs, which in, in turn affect your fantasy value. How predictive that is, I don't know. Bogart's endeavors, they're going to come down. You know, uh, Martinez is having a Martinez year. You could argue Martinez's numbers are down because of the the 210 RBI from the second and third place hitters in front of him, and even Mookie Betts leading off. So uh, I, I, I think he's the same player, but it's just situationally the counting stats have fallen. And if he's going to hit fifth, I think it's going to take care of itself. Um, you just have to expect fewer, less run production if that's where he's going to land. 
Well, uh, if you'd have told me a couple of days ago that Andrew Benatendi's slash line was fundamentally unchanged, I would have told you I thought you were crazy because I hadn't looked into it that much. I have him <laughs> on one of my teams. But uh, last year, his slash, 290, 366, 465. This year, 283, so seven points down. 357, nine points down. 465, unchanged. And so his slash line is exactly as you said. It's basically no different. And uh, the problem is he's striking out 50% more this year than last. Yeah, there is that. And, I mean, yeah, the, you know, again, though, he, <laughs> the, the guys in front of him are driving a lot of the guys that, that he normally is yeah. just having such fantastic errors. You've got two guys ahead of you. They're going to have over 120 RBI. How many are going to be left? And at the time, he was hitting first and second a lot early, and those just aren't RBI spots. So, yeah, there, there, there's there's team context. The strikeouts are a concern. Um, in this, he, he put on some weight. Not well, he put on some muscle. He put on some muscle in the off season, and you know, anecdotally, is he did he lose some did he lose uh, flexibility? This that speed. I don't think so. I, I think that at that point it is a concern, but it is something I want to at least think about. Um, you know, part of it was by this point of the year, he had felt he had been worn down a bit. So um, we'll, we'll have to see. But there, he was a little bit bulkier coming in. The power's down a bit. And I think part of Benintendi, too, and I know you compared to numbers, but I think in our heads, I think a lot of people expected improvement. And I think part of the reason he's considered a disappointment is, we're comparing him to what the expected improvement would have been, and it, that that did not manifest. So he may be a guy next year that it, there, it, you can get a be decent return on investment, although he, it, this is more of a game theory sort of thing. He's kind of one of those guys that helps you cross the board. It depends if you want to get, as uh, frequent guest Scott Pianowski calls it, category juice. Does he, you know, do you, would you rather have a guy that, all right, I'm going to get my homers here and I'll get steals later, or do you want a guy that's going to get a little bit of everything? You need both, but in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth rounds, um, it, it does temper or, or to shape what you do for the rest of your draft. And one other thing is I wonder to what extent the team or he himself decided that he wanted to change his approach at the plate to hit more fly balls and seek out those home runs. His fly ball percentage is up yeah. about eight points. His line drive percentage is down about four. His uh, ground ball percentage is down about four. So uh, he clearly seems to have tried to uh, increase his fly ball percentage, and it, and it worked. The problem is that uh, you know he's just it's, it seems to be causing him to swing and miss a lot more and and so whatever benefit he's deriving from increasing the fly balls he's giving right back because he's just not putting balls into play. Uh, a couple of Blue Jays prospects with uh, Major League Baseball pedigrees got promoted and they got some early buzz. But Bo Bichette and Kevin Biggio have been of mixed use. Uh, Biggio twelve homers, nine stolen bases in fewer than three hundred at bats, but he's only hitting two twelve. Bichette has eight home runs. He's only got three stolen bases and four caught and he's hitting 326 how do you rate these two young hitters for 2020 yeah i mean it's 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 weird um biggio, you know biggio he's, i like biggio the batting average is going to be concerned he to me he's, he's coming as advertised biggio is in that he's he's filling up the counting stats with the batting average risk and he, even in today's day, with a actually, I think the actual the average is back up a little this year. It had been falling, so I, I can take back the thought. I was going to say in today's day, age, 212 isn't you know isn't as bad as it was. I think it it is as bad as it was, but I think there will be some improvement there. I don't think he'll ever, I don't think he'll ever you know threaten to win the batting title or anything. 
But I, I think there is some upside, of course. I mean, when you're that low, there's only one place to go. But he is doing the – his inning power is uh, is running a bit. And you, you said fewer than 300, so you double that. You know, that's a that's a 20-20 season, if not higher, uh, if he's hitting higher in the order and getting 650 at-bats. Although you're saying at-bats, not plate appearances, so 600 is about right. Uh, Bichette, you know, one of those uh, like, like Fernando Tatis where when we, we – there's not going to be enough time for the re, the regression that should have happened to be to bake in, so we're going to be left with a really really high number. And as far as batting average goes, and have to regress it based upon some of the Statcast data, et cetera, regress it on our own expected batting average. But like them both, I think the name value may it may drive me off of may drive me off of Bichette. I think that the inverse might happen for Biggio. I might be more into Biggio than others one reason being i'm i'm less concerned about batting average there's so much volatility there that give me the counting stats and i'll figure batting average out um bichette i think is hitting all those doubles and everything else getting his name in the uh in the in the limelight it's it, his price might be too high you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with todd zola from Rotowire and ESPN and Masters Ball. And uh, let's go to some starting pitchers, Todd. Before we talk about specific guys, uh, how likely are you to stick with your contrarian take this year, at least somewhat contrarian, about not taking starters in the early rounds or at least not focusing on taking starters in the early rounds? Yeah, that's the key. You uh, you, you hit the key there, not focusing. My, my, my mantra has not been, no, take starters. It's don't force a starting pitcher in just because I need to have one. I mean... Talk about the TGFBI. I took Aaron Nola in the second, and I took Mike Clevenger in the fourth. So some say, ah, you, you, you went against. You took pitchers early. You lied. No, I didn't lie. I got Nola later than the main event ADP, and I got Clevenger later than the main event. You know, I, I, got, I didn't chase them. To me, they came where they should have been taken, and I never said don't do that. I just said don't jump a pitcher up 10 spots in your draft board because I don't want to leave the fourth round without two aces. Because then you're gonna, what you're doing is you're still leaving it without two, two aces. You just got a, a second level ace and you're paying first level ace numbers for and you you're leaving some hitting on the table. So and I, I don't I don't see I don't see for changing that at all. I don't see ever changing that it. What matters then is is how many different pitchers fall into the different tiers. So in different years people may just naturally go to that go that way this year people seem to be jumping pitchers up because they uh, monkey see monkey do with nfbc etc uh, i'm curious to see what the general market feels if if the market goes in that direction then it's not much of a contrarian take anymore you know <laughs> so this year's uh, top earning pitcher by a huge margin has been Justin Verlander. Of course, we all know he's having a Cy Young caliber year, uh, 256, 107, uh, sorry, 077 decimals, 257 strikeouts and 193 innings. This guy's been absolutely everything that we could have hoped for. Uh, does he top your list in 2020? Yeah, probably. Uh, I, I have to decide what we're going to do for age. I he. Listen, the guy just threw a no-hitter, right? So how much how much can you downgrade him for age? I think he's if it's I, I don't at this point I don't know who I'd have above him. You know, I I think that maybe if 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 Garrett Cole gets traded or signs of the Giants, maybe. But other than that, I uh I think I think you have to. I think Scherzer showed that 
you can no longer prom- uh, promote him, pro- project him for the the huge innings. And I think if you're giving Verlander and Scherzer equal innings, I think at this point it goes Verlander. Well, you mentioned the uh, influence of old-timers in the uh, top 10 values this year. Uh, Zach Greinke's fifth overall. Scherzer, you mentioned, is eighth. Clayton Kershaw, how about that? A nice bounce back to sit 10th. How much do you believe in each of these guys, given their age, and how would you rank them as far as going into 2020? Uh, I, I will, will not have well, no, will not will not have Greinke fifth, <laughs> uh, but I still think that until... I'm probably going to be on the bag in one year too long. You know, to me, it's, 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 you know, everybody likes to say I like to get out one year too early than one year too late. I'm probably going to stay on the Granky bandwagon. We're going to get the same reports. My velocity's down. I'm going to stink this year. And then he's going to go out and have another Jack Granky to- sort of year. So uh, it's, it, he'll probably be a maybe top 20. I don't see him fifth. Scherzer, you know, I, I guess it's going to have, become, have to talk to more of the, uh, injury, Stefania Bell and, and, and Jeff Stoss from Motowire, and I know uh, maybe, maybe maybe even drop Rick Wilton a line. We hear you know backs are bad, backs are bad. I don't know that this is the same problem with Scherzer when it's muscular. So I'm gonna find you know I'm gonna want to find out if if this is now a an issue that we have to worry about every year, or do you just happen to hurt a muscle and we don't need to worry about it next year any more than we would before the injury. So I think that, but even so, just getting older, I don't think we can give him 32 starts at seven innings apiece anymore. I think you have to temper that down and project for 200 innings and not 230, and that's just going to organically bring the the formulaic rank down. Kershaw, I mean, I guess it's a bounce back, but he's he's, he's kind of he's done exactly what we thought he would if he stayed healthy. Now he just happened to miss happened to miss games early, and he hasn't missed any at least yet. Uh, so he's going to get the same 24, 25, 26 starts the past few years. To me, it's a little encouraging that he made once once healthy, stayed healthy, but I don't think you can uh, give him 32 games next year. Um, strikeouts are down a bit, but it's it's he's to me he's now he's probably top 10. He's not with the strikeouts are down. He's not going to finish top five, but he's he's in the back end of the top 10 anyway. Some high-ranking surprises this year, a youngster, uh, Shane Bieber of Cleveland, mm. and an older fellow, Charlie Morton of Tampa. How high will they be on your top starters list? Yeah, I think Bieber, uh, you know, he was the pop, you know, popular looking at the looking at the high BABIP last year, etc. I don't think anybody expected the strikeouts to land where they were. So I need to take a little bit harder look at, you know, where do I expect the strikeout rate to land? But I think he's, I think he's every bit deserving of a top 20 rank. Morton, Morton's weird. And earlier in the year, it was one of those, he's out pitching his peripherals. And whenever I did my pitching rankings on Rotowire, it's like, why do you have him so low? It's like, well, look at his XFIP. Look at his expected ERA. And, you know, what happened, you know, usually... Luck, you know, luck goes away and the pitcher's numbers, you know, bloat a bit. Well, sometimes you get better. Sometimes you get higher skilled and it sort of fights the regression. Maybe the regression's there because regression can't be controlled, but the skills mask the effect of it. And that's kind of what happened with Morton. But he's going to get a year older and I think that he's sort of at the upper end of his skill range. I think that he's probably going to be... In the top 25, but I think we you do need to temper innings, and I think that'll drop him down to somewhere somewhere between 20 and 25 for me. 
I'm going to assume Garrett Cole is high on everyone's 2020 list. Uh, we talked about him a moment ago, but how much concern should there be? You mentioned a possible team change, and boy, if he goes to some place with a huge outfield and you know good uh, good defenders out there, that might change <laughs> your tune and and raise him on your list. But he could also end up in Yankee Stadium. I mean, they have the money, God knows, and uh, and and. What if he ends up in a place like that with you know small parks, good hitting teams uh, that you're playing all the time? Uh, how much influence would that have on Garrett Cole's valuation? Well, Minute Maid is very interesting in that it accelerates homers, but it's a pitcher's park, one of the one of the best pitcher's parks. So you know, when when whenever the translation is done wherever he lands, it's going to be interesting to see the effect because there's so much a wide range of, of what can happen. Um, homers obviously are an issue, but I think he's saved not saved, but I think he's helped a bit. Like we mentioned by Houston, it, it increases strikeouts as well. So the, he's just on a. I think the only word I could describe it not not get in trouble with my editors, which is goofy. His strikeouts are just goofy right now, and he he actually had a, a another high strikeout game after I wrote that note when I last ranked the pitching. He's just on a, his strikeout rate is just silly. Um, I think it, I think it will be park dependent. I mean, he could be the number one pitcher. I don't see him falling further and fit further than the fifth. I don't know what park he would need to land in to be to be number one, but I, I think I think he could be the top. Maybe it's staying. Maybe it's just staying with Houston. I don't know. But uh, he could be anywhere from number one to, you know, five or six. Uh, rounding out the top ten this year, Steven Strasburg, Jacob deGrom, Hyunjin Ryu. Uh, where do they stand for you for next year? Uh, I think Strasburg is what he is. And, you know, I, I think probably just because you need temper innings a bit, lands about where he is. deGrom, eh, he should be one of these years. He'll get the wins. I know it's a bit better than last year. But, uh, you know, it's just as far as fantasy numbers go, it's because of the wins. And one of these years will get him. And Ryu, you know, again, you know, we talk about, you know, luck, luck skill both at the same time. Ryu's on my TGFBI team. Um, it was, am I lucky that he hasn't gotten hurt? Yeah, absolutely, of course. But was it, a, you know, was it good planning to target him? Because uh, if people just draft his numbers, he's going to be lower in the ranks. But when you figure you can replace him when he's hurt and therefore improve his ranking, that's the smart part. So the lucky part was doing what he's doing. But the smart part was knowing that, you know, he, he'd be better than the rank. So, again, Ryu is a, a both better, better be lucky and good on the same player. But, yeah, I mean, you can't. You have to uh, fix the numbers. You have to regress the numbers. And he's doing that a bit on his own. He's had a couple rough outings. And even if he doesn't get hurt the rest of the year, next year, you're not going to project him for 32 starts. Some young pitchers looked really good in a somewhat surprising way, uh, and particularly Lucas Giolito in Chicago. This was a just out-of-nowhere weird breakout season, but how sustainable is it as a factor of fluke? Yeah, and this is going to be. I mean, I think the, I think you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of the next Lucas Giolitos uh, on articles or in Twitter or you know podcasts. I think that's going to be a, a theme. The next Lucas Giolito, and there's at this point you could you can reverse engineer and figure out why it happened. And in the off season, he redid his repertoire, redid his motion, changed up his pitch mix, added spin, added velocity, and it just it just clicked. So you're not going to know this. You're not going to know absolutely that that pitcher's going to do it. So I think our job is going to be identifying pitchers that 
have the ability or the capability or the opportunity to do that. And we don't, and, and uh, actually I may, be, I may be doing a bit of a uh, precursor to what we're going to talk about in on our podcast in Arizona, but I don't think we have to project the numbers of the next Lucas Giolito. I think we just have to identify that this handful of pitchers has the chance to break out. And however we go about alerting the public of that, be it in a profile, be it in an article, being it making his projection just better that he goes up five spots on our rankings compared to the market, you know, put in a um, just and this isn't this isn't jerry rigging it. This is I'm thinking about adding this to my projections as sort of a a factor, a breakout factor. And I think that the inverse of that is like a Charlie Morton, a factor to lose because you're getting old and factor that into the numbers i think i think is the way to do it so uh giolito was real we just don't know uh unless you just know you know bird dog every pitch in the offseason what are you doing you change your repertoire we're not going to know how much we can learn in the spring i'm not sure uh we do have a, a lot more information in the spring that if we notice a pitcher's velocity is up uh we can check on the spin etc but um i you know i, I don't know how much we can learn in the spring I think what you have to do a better job is early in the season identifying changes and, and pinpointing them as being, this is real. It's not just a lucky start for this guy. Look at the spin rate. Look at the velocity. Look at the pitch mix. He's no longer throwing the two-seamer. He's throwing a, a cutter or whatever it might be. Uh, it's real. I talked about Lucas Giolito on uh uh, master notes a few m- weeks ago and uh, one of the things that jumped out at me in the narrative area and this is something where we're, I think we're going to have to grit our teeth and start looking at these things because they're, they're going to be more important because so much is happening behind the scenes mm-hmm. as far as training techniques and uh, the technology that's available especially to pitchers but also to hitters the advanced coaching outside of the team context all of these kind of things and one of the articles I read about Lucas Giolito is he he consulted with some kind of psychologist who got him to be able to focus on not being anxious when he's not doing well. And mm-hmm. he said it was the single biggest change he says he made. I mean, you talked about his pitch mix, and he did that, and he probably improved his pitches by quite a bit. But he credited the lion's share of his explosive breakout this year to just being more calm out there, which was a result not of anything physical or not of anything technological. It was just a guy teaching him how to relax. Yeah, and you hear about uh, uh, is it Houston? Is it Verlander talks about sleep, and he just preaches sleep. You know, yep. and you hear you hear uh, Mike Napoli with the with the apnea getting getting the operation. So just being more rested. So there has to be something to this, and I'm sure they feed into each other, right? You're you're more confident, you're more able to enact the changes, or you just have a, sometimes it's just a, your mood. If you're just in a better mood, if you're in a happier place then you're more willing to uh, change things. You know, you're, you're more open-minded. So I absolutely think that that has to do with it. Again, though, unless you have access to, you know, all these, all these uh, you know, their, their, their off-season whereabouts and who they're seeing and, and whatever, we're not going to know them. But I don't think we, I don't think we, you know, even the numbers guys, I don't think we can just laugh and scoff and make a Twitter joke when we read that so-and-so is meditating or so-and-so is doing yoga. You know, I don't, I don't think we can just categorically dismiss it as I'm a numbers guy, I'm smarter than you. I think it all matters. 
Of course, we've been talking mostly about guys with relatively high profiles, but then there are those other guys, the seasoned veterans who seem to come out of nowhere. And uh, the two that really interest me in this, and I'm very curious about your take, Todd, in Texas, Mike Miner and Lance Lynn. I mean, both okay pitchers. Lynn was actually a pretty decent pitcher in the past in St. Louis, but boy, they're having just sensational years. And is it the team? Is it the context? It's a tough park for pitchers. What the heck is going on with these two guys? And is it a factor of fluke? Yeah, uh, and, and what's interesting is there's going to be a new park in Texas next year. And it's still going to be hot, but there's going to have a roof, and it's going to be air-conditioned and all that sort of thing. So at least for some of their home games, I'm sure they'll have the park open for some, but for some of their home games, the conditions should be more favorable to pitchers. I don't know about the dimensions and any of that sort of thing. So I've been kind of – I've been all – for the past couple months, I've been saying in keeper leagues – Go after those, because Texas pitchers were probably cheap. Colby Allard when he got traded. Stuff, you know, go after these Texas pitchers, because they're probably cheap, and they may be better next year just because of it. Now, Lynn, surpri- I don't say surprisingly, but um, I guess it is surprisingly, because if you, th- you think of Lance Lynn, you think of home runs. Even when he pitched for the Yankees last year, past couple of years, his home runs have been down a bit. So whether he's sort of the the has figured out how to combat the elevated swing by working higher in the zone. Maybe he's, maybe it's helped that way. But his the, his home run rate has been fine. Miner's always been good. I mean, had a pretty decent pedigree. Then he got hurt. Then he went to the bullpen. And I expected, you know, every time I write about him, it's just it's going to get worse when he gets hot in Texas. Well, you know, it's cooling down where I am in New England. But it's still kind of hot, you know, in, in Texas. But it's not as hot. But uh, he seemed to beat that. He It's good. Uh I haven't dug deep yet. I let, I mean, uh, sort of offhandedly, I do like them both. I don't expect a huge fall. And I think the whole narrative about the park, I think it's actually, one's Glove-like, it's not Glove-like park, I think it's be Glove-like field. I'm sure we'll get dimensions and we'll figure out, you know, at least on paper, how it might play. But I don't think it could be any worse. I mean, last year, and when it was hot across the country, it was a more friendly hitter's park than Coors Field. In both homers and runs, so it can only help. I, I'm I'm going to be on them both, but I don't know that they'll repeat this season. We mentioned guys who are, you know, working on the technology and on the advanced training and stuff. And the poster child for it is Trevor Bauer, and this year started off pretty well, uh, got a lot of strikeouts, but 4.50 ERA, 129 WHIP. This is not great. Uh, very enigmatic guy. Is he an opportunity for next year in Cincinnati, or do you find him to be more of a high risk gamble? Yeah, take 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 his numbers, the last four years. Take away the name and everything that goes with it, and you say, man, last year was a fluke, right? I mean, the, the, the 18, sorry, this is 19. So. Uh, 16, 17, and 19, the numbers are almost very close within within variance. And last year, it was different, and he just gave up so many fewer homers. So did he figure something out to give up fewer homers, or was he was it just dumb luck? And I think it's probably a little bit of both. You know, then, then, then Ron Chandler's old, once you own a skill, you can display it again. But shouldn't shouldn't you always have once you once you show that you stink, you should be able to stink again too? So which way does it go? Um, I'm skeptical. I think I think people are going to overpay for the name and the numbers and the and the story, and maybe I get burned. Maybe he returns to to last year's level. I don't know. The skills are definitely there. The strikeouts are definitely there. I can hear a lot of people saying, "Well, I'm going to draft him because I know I'm going to get strikeouts, and I'll, I'll we'll see what happens after that." 
Well, they, that's what happened with Herman Marquez this year. So I'm going to go with your high-risk gamble um, choice. Yeah, I think that uh, track record goes back to 2015. As a matter of fact, uh, you mentioned uh, ERAs in the mid-fours, uh, home run per fly ball rate, 11 12%. Very consistent, except for 2018. I think you're right about that. Uh, I'm interested also in what you think of Jose Barrios. Uh, for the longest time, we've been expecting this guy to be an ace, and now he's wrapping up a, a third straight low to mid-teens dollar value season. You know, capable, competent pitcher, good SP 2.5 or 3 as he goes into 2020, he'll be 26 years old. How likely are we to see something new from Jose Brios, or have we seen what's new in Jose Brios? Don't know. And uh, he's a guy that I need to take a deeper look at because, again, part of what I'm going to do is I don't think we need to identify exactly what the next Lucas Giolito is going to be. I think we just need to identify that he could do it. I need, I'm going to have certain, you know, check marks, pedigree, you know, uh, uh, spin, this, that, certain things. And if, if a pitcher shows the potential for getting better in an X amount of these boxes, then he's going to be on my breakout list. I have not done the work yet for Barrios, but um, that's what I want to see is, 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 is there, is there, is there latent improvement? that isn't yet being reflected or is there room for latent improvement or is what you see what you get which isn't terrible by the way right you know that you know we know that but yeah is is there the next step perfect age that sort of thing so he on the surface it it seems as though there should be but again i don't want to just predict it i want to say this is why i think burrios is gonna improve markedly next year and finally, a couple of pitchers, Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard, top round or set top two rounds. Pitchers uh, have both had down seasons. How much do you think their underperformance will affect their draft status for next season? And how much should their 2019s affect their 2020s? Yeah, they're both interesting. And, and well, you know, the, we're, we're going to have the cop out that all we need to do is factor injury risk in. And we don't, you know, we can we can we can shy away from having to predict the numbers because the injury risk we're going to factor in is going to bring the numbers down, etc. Sale, the numbers, if if you you take away Chris Sale, you take away the Boston Red Sox, and you're looking at a pitcher who incredibly outperformed his peripherals and got no run support, but because it's Chris Sale and because it's the Red Sox, it's uh, you know he stinks, this that, you know the other. Now the whole injury concern as well. So skills-wise, I mean, neutral skills, he still could he still could have the best skills in the league. You know, home run rate and walk well, sorry, walk rate and strikeout rate adjusted for Park because Fenway Park brings numbers down. He still could have the the truest raw skills in the league. Of course, he's going to be back in Fenway, so that doesn't matter. But um, it's going to be tough. And Syndergaard is always like I just as I think, just as I want to say. Just as I want to say, Syndergaard's had a, you know, he's back on track. It's it hit a rough start. He just had, he has another little bit of a speed bump on the second half that the, the second half numbers aren't going to be fantastic. They're going to be better, but it's not as if they're going to be, there's no, no speed bumps along the way. So a little bit, little, little bit skeptical on the boat, but they're the kind of pitcher where, I don't know, if you embrace risk, they're the kind of guys you want, but I'm going to be more of the, I want to embrace risk on batting and, sort of at least in my mind be more stable with pitching if that gets me off of these guys i guess that gets me off of these guys it's kind of a 
you know, if if our friend Kimball Crosby talking about, you know, now I'm really dropping names, first pitch form. He always sort of, you know, lamented, how come you guys all play 10 and 12 leagues? You should play one NAL, one AL, and one mix, and that's it. And even that's too much, you know, kind of being little little paraphrasing. But, you know, if I play 10 leagues, I want Chris Sale in one of them. I'm not going <laughs> to that, that, that's the sort of thing. And, and it, that's it's that's that's the way we think nowadays, I guess. But um, I am a little bit skeptical. On the other hand, you know, having seen him wasn't quite as bad as people make him out to be. Or maybe I'm just echoing Red Sox fans and how bad they're saying he's pitched compared to people that play fantasy that look a, a little deeper into the numbers. And finally, Todd, let's just look briefly at the reliever situation. This year's top value closer, Kirby Yates of San Diego, 92 strikeouts in 50 innings, which is fantastic, a 129 ERA, 092 whip, and he's closing in on 40 saves for a team that doesn't win a ton of games. Is Yates a fact as a top closer, especially for next year, or is he more of a fluke? Uh, these kind of things happen with relievers a lot. Well, he's a fact that he's this good. Whether or not he gets the number of saves or not is is the question. That's just the way it always is going to be. I had Yates, you know, I you know, on my TJFBI team again, lucky or good. Um, I, I I didn't want to pay for a top closer because I knew we could get Kirby Yates a little bit later, and he ends up being the top closer. So um, I think the skills are real. The number of saves you're going to project him for some saves just because the team's going to win some more games and saves dovetail on team wins. And they dovetail on Team ERA. Not a huge correlation, but better than anything else. And in both factors next year, San Diego should be better. So I don't know how many saves I'll project, but he'll probably I'll probably project more saves for Yates than any other pitcher. On the other end of the scale, Edwin Diaz was a complete dud oh. for the Mets. And uh, here's a guy who was last year's uh, last year's genius. Uh, uh, running up uh, saves like crazy, and he's got horrendous decimals this year. He does have 25 saves, and give him credit where it's due, but he lost the closer role because his ERA is over 5 and his whip is around 140 or 150. What are his prospects for 2019? Do you have any um, track record or any research that you've done about uh, closers or, or high-quality relievers who have a down year and how likely they are to rebound? No, it's just the sample is just so small, and there's so much, there's so little margin for error, and I, I don't know. And I, I, Diaz, is it two years ago that Anthony Swarzak actually had a, both when they were both with Seattle, he had a better he had a better season than than Diaz. I mean, this isn't the first time that Diaz has struggled. It just when closers come off an incredible season, we you know we we just jump them way up. Lake trying in this past year. So uh, it's 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 part of the it's both the elegance and frustration with having you know having to do what we do and projecting and or draft closers. So um, I, I, there's so much there's so much risk or just so much variance there that if I'm going to I'm either want someone up the top who I feel safer about and I, this is the guy that paid top dollar for Blake Trinan, so it sometimes backfires. In that range, I'm probably going to wait and not take a Diaz. And just if I'm going to take a chance, I'm not going to pay quite as much for the chance. And as usual, we had some out-of-nowhere closers this mm. year. A lot of guys who probably were picked up in-year, Liam Hendricks, Emilio Pagan, uh, Brandon Workman, Taylor Rogers, guys like this. How can we assess the likelihood of any of these guys retaining the closer role into 2020 and succeeding with it? Yeah, it's going to be tough because we're talking, you know, team context. Uh, you know, 
the Rays, they like to play around. And uh, you talk about with Liam Hendricks on Oakland. There's How many years does Oakland have the same closer? Brandon Workman of Boston, do they go out and sign somebody? Or, or is, is Workman the guy? So it's going to be tough. And, and um, I think and I, th- I think this is probably going to come up when we at my first pitch with the, the you, you mentioned before uh, with the ball in that, you know, part of it has just has to do with the overall run environment and just the way things are and the way categories now lay out. They're the same number of saves in the league, but there's fewer saves in the fantasy pool just because they're spread out differently. And whereas you you needed to get two closers before, again, I'm going to reference my silly TGFBI team. I've had Kirby Yates all year, but I haven't had a I've bounced guys in as my second closer. I don't know that strategically if you need to get two what you consider to be comfortable closers. I think you can get one comfortable closer, whether he turns out comfortable or not, who knows, but one in your head comfortable closer. And, and as opposed to where before we used to, you know, throw darts at our third closer, I don't know that we need the third closer as much anymore because you just don't need as many saves. And maybe you're a bit less comfortable there with your second closer. And it, it frees up a spot to, to, to fortify hitting or starting pitching. And, and wait on a second closer. So I think if anything else is strategically, game theory-wise, the fact that all these names you're mentioning um, are coming up, you just don't need the number of saves anymore. You need to get, you need, you need to land in the middle. You need that guy to get your 40 saves to get you to the middle, and then you don't need as much to, to gain points over that. Well, since you're talking about game theory, this raises the question about that comfortable closer. Uh, some of the top guys did return value, maybe not big profits, but you <laughs> didn't lose anything on Aroldis Chapman or Brad Hand or Roberto Osuna. But I remember in the not-too-distant past that guys did lose money on Aroldis Chapman and Roberto Osuna for varying different reasons. Should we still be thinking of bidding into the high teen dollars or early sixth round, late fifth round on these so-called established closers? Are they safe enough? Yeah, that's why you're the best, PD, because you're gonna you're gonna call me on this theory. You can it's one thing to say it, but tell me who you're gonna draft. I was thinking about this. There's just there aren't a lot of comfortable closers. How many you know even even in the playoffs, how many comfortable closers are there? And, and you know Yates maybe you know is is Vasquez Felipe Vasquez at this point one. There just aren't a ton of them. So you know you try to find the guy that you trust in that middle range that could jump into that top range far too early to make that assumption or make that that make that call you need to see what teams are going to do but i think you know if you if you don't pay for it i think you need to have somebody in mind and kirby yates and brad hand were a couple this year that you can just tell you know the early mocks the early adps this this guy's going early yates is you know i don't have to draft trinan i can grab yates or whatever uh, i don't know who those guys are going to end up being but um if you're not comfortable with someone in that middle that's going to make the leap. And I know Jason Collette was on Kirby Yates all year long, so I'm not the only one. Uh, If you don't have that guy in the middle, then I I think you do need to invest in one of the few that you do consider to be safe. And again, now it's buyer beware because they're not always going to end up safe. And I'll, you know, point again to Blake Trinan, who, you know, was one of the many reasons my labor team is terrible. 
Todd, before I let you go, maybe you could tell our listeners about the panel that you'll be on this year, hosted by Ron Chandler at First Pitch Arizona. I was on a Ron Chandler organized panel last year. It went very well. He's a very conscientious guy, as we both know. Tell our listeners what the panel's about and uh, what your take's going to be. Yeah, we are going to talk about the baseball. And I think the uh, I think Ron's calling it, it's the ball, stupid. And which it's 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 an it's a it's a full length panel. It's an hour hour and a half long. I forget exactly uh, the, the the length of it. And we're basically gonna you know as you know Ron will will send us some questions, but we all tend to talk whatever. We're gonna talk about everything from you know why why what happened what happened you know home runs why they went up and and but but the next few steps and I've kind of alluded to a few of them is what do we then do. All right, the the ball the ball is a uh, home run. This is the home run rate. This is the strikeout rate. What do we now have to do on our fantasy teams to combat that, or to leverage it, or to take advantage of it, or you know to to win knowing this? So I think that's going to be the fun part is the the game theory involved. And I've kind of I've alluded to a couple already as far as as where I'm going with it. Um, something I, I I haven't yet talked about here, I, I remember we talked about it previous, is I've done some research on, well, I mentioned Mike Podhorse's research on the fly ball distance. I've done some work on hitters that had a fly X fly ball distance last year at 10, to, at 10 feet because of the ball. These hitters should get proportionally more home runs this year. Uh, I need to go sort of look at that data and, and find out did it work? Was I with the predictions I made good, both for hitting and pitching? Now we're not going to add ten more feet, so the I don't. It's not the same application, but it, it could help us determine what hitters are going to continue to hit home runs and what hitters may not hit home runs uh, with the ball. Try to flesh out the luck within the, the the whole ball thing. So it should be an interesting panel. Um, I can't believe I'm drawing a, a mental block on the third. Uh, on the uh, Jason Collette's on it with me. And I'm going to have to profusely apologize to somebody who I'm forgetting is is uh, uh, Tristan, of course. Tristan Cockroft is the uh, is the uh, is ESPN is the other member of the panel. Sounds like it'll be a terrific time, a very interesting topic, and as I said, Ron really knows how to organize a panel and his. Real gift is uh, apparently getting top quality guests like Todd Zola. Todd, thanks for everything you've done today and all throughout the year. The talks that we have offline and just talking about baseball and life in general, it's, it's just a real treat to have a friend like you and somebody who contributes so much. I do appreciate it. Thanks a million. All right, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll crack one open at the fire pit. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire and has been a tried and true friend of the Baseball HQ radio podcast for lo these many years. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 38 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season, our last show of the regular season. We will be back again during First Pitch Arizona, probably October 11th or 12th, and I'll be appearing on some other fantasy podcasts over the next little while. I'll tweet that news out as it happens. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday special edition, Todd Zola, from Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire. As I said, Todd's been a great friend of the show for a very long time, and I'm always glad to have him on for an extended chat. I'm Patrick Davitt. I was your Master Notes commentator all year and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. like to see you at First Pitch Arizona. If you come by, make sure you find me and say hello. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. 
You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. And again, thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate that you take the time to listen to the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.